This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Age of Folly, America Abandons Its Democracy by Lewis H. Lapham. This book, which, as a quick aside, has the Trump-Saudi glowing orb photo on its cover, makes the case that while the president is undoubtedly a menace— He isn't a surprise. He embodies the spirit of an age of folly abandoned to conspicuous consumption of vanity and greed. A self-glorifying photo op, Trump is made to the measure of an infotainment media in which presidential candidates are game show contestants brought to judgment on election day before the throne of cameras by whom and for whom they are produced. To regard Trump as an amazement beyond belief is to give him credit where none is due, to mistake a symptom for the cause. Trump's presence in the White House follows from an American regime change over the last 25 years, during which a weakened but still operational democracy gave way to a stupefied and dysfunctional plutocracy. The history of that change is a hedge against the despair of the present, making possible the revolt against what G.K. Chesterton called the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. Age of Folly, America Abandons Its Democracy, by Lewis H. Lapham, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Last week was a bad week for Republicans— and a good week for Democrats, and for Democratic Socialists. Democrats won governorships in New Jersey and Virginia, and won a large number of legislative seats in the latter. It's now pretty clear that the Republican Party will pay a price for the fact that huge numbers of Americans detest our dotard-in-chief, Donald Trump. But the lessons to be learned from last Tuesday are kind of complicated. For one, Republican gerrymandering will make it extraordinarily difficult for Democrats to win back the House next year, even if they win a solid majority of the popular vote. What's more, that popular vote majority may very well be narrowed by ongoing Republican voter suppression efforts. And last week's election— once again, fails to offer any sort of definitive answer to the long-running debate between the left and the corporate democratic establishment over who is best poised to beat Republicans. On the one hand, Democrats won the governorship in Virginia with a guy who is pretty much a Republican. On the other hand, DSA candidates had a solid showing as well, including in the race won by one of my guests today, Lee Carter, who took out the Republican whip and won Virginia's 50th House District. My second guest is David Dualde, DSA's deputy director. We're going to talk about all of this and more, and I'll be continuing that discussion in a few weeks with journalist Jeff Stein. Before we get started, we need your support. You knew that was coming. Not only so that I can cover my own bills, though that's important, but also because I have to pay for a lot of other things, 
for my indispensable producer, Alex Lewis, who signed on to this when I had no money to offer him. And we had no clue whether this was a good idea or even whether anyone was going to want to listen to it at all. To pay for the resonant tunes made by the inimitable Jeffrey Brodsky. To pay for overhead like audio hosting. And ultimately, to invest in improving guest audio so that it's better quality than the phone lines and Skype lines that you hear now. And for travel as well because I'm planning on doing some live shows next year. For sure, I think in New York, Providence, Philly, Boston, and L.A., but I hope to get to some more places either next year or the year after or sometime, like the Bay, D.C., Texas, Chicago, and the Northwest, both for live shows and for my book tour, whenever that happens. So stay tuned for dates and announcements of who I will be interviewing I'm just starting to figure that all out. And so, if you haven't already, go to patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. And make a monthly contribution of whatever you can spare. Thanks for supporting independent left-wing media. Now, on to the show. Lee Carter, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. You're an open socialist and DSA member, and you just took out the Republican whip in the Virginia House of Delegates. First, who are you? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and second, how did you pull this off? Uh, so I'm a Marine Corps veteran. I did five years on active duty, uh, deployed twice at the 22nd Marine Expeditionary Unit, including once to Haiti after the earthquake in 2010. Uh, and I decided to run for office after I got hurt at work in the summer of 2015. Uh, I was installing a lighting control panel that an electrician had miswired. Uh, there was voltage where there should not have been. I, I got a shock across uh, across my chest, and in pulling away from the panel, blew my back out. I could barely walk for about two and a half months, and uh, then, you know, when I was able to walk again after paying a doctor out of pocket to fix the problem, I decided I'm going to run for office. Uh, and fix the problems that I saw with the way workers are treated, you know, specifically with the workers' comp system in Virginia, but, uh, you know, the way workers are treated more generally. Uh, and, you know, that was really the key to this campaign. You know, I, I didn't, at the time, I didn't consider myself a democratic socialist. Um, I had always been a Democrat, but sort of uh, disaffected by the way that a lot of Democrats act with their in power. You know, I've, I've always considered myself kind of an FDR kind of guy rather than a Bill Clinton kind of guy. Uh, and so that was the kind of campaign that I set about from the start running. Uh, although when I had the first conversation uh, with the state party, they told me, you're free to run as far left as you want, but you're going to lose. Uh, but I threw that conventional wisdom out the door. Uh, and a lot of the courage to do that came from seeing uh, Senator Sanders' presidential campaign in 2016. Uh, so I went around on a, a platform of basically workers' rights and building a Virginia where everyone can live and work and not have to worry about how they're going to put food on the table, not have to worry about how they're going to make the rent, not have to worry about whether they're one injury or illness away from financial disaster. 
not have to worry about whether they're going to be discriminated against based on who they love or who they were born to be. Uh, and so we were able to put together this coalition of uh, Democratic Socialists of America, which I became a member of after the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, uh, with a lot of groups that make up the traditional base of the Democratic Party. So we had support from uh, a lot of these you know, resistance groups like the, the Women's March, uh, you know, Sister District and uh, Flip Sisters and Swing Left and, you know, these these other groups that have popped up recently, like Indivisible uh, and some more traditional groups like labor unions and Planned Parenthood, NARAL Pro-Choice Virginia and uh, the Sierra Club and, uh, you know, groups like that. And we were able to put this coalition together that united the the hard economic left with the traditional base of the Democratic Party in defiance of Democratic Party leadership. Uh, and with that, we were able to go out there and talk to people on their doorsteps uh, and get them excited about a race that they typically would not have paid attention to in the past. Uh, you know, my opponent actually broke his own personal record for the number of votes that he received uh, prior to last week. Uh, his record was 9,498. He got 9,510 last Tuesday. Uh, but we were able to activate so many people who would never have thought about voting in an off-off year before uh, that him breaking his own personal record didn't matter, and we still got a nine-point margin of victory. You ran as a Democrat, but as you just mentioned, in defiance of the Democratic Party establishment. Tell me about that relationship with the state party and where the friction came from. Yeah, it was very interesting. You know, like I said, we were working with a lot of groups that make up the base of the Democratic Party. So we had really good relationships with uh, with the Virginia AFL-CIO and with Planned Parenthood, NARAL and Sierra Club uh, and, and groups like that. But uh, we did have a, a sort of a tense relationship with the state party. There were uh, some some logistical concerns that uh, couldn't be reconciled, although you know, I, I will give them credit, both sides. You know, I, I approached them and and tried to resolve this on a couple of occasions. And they tried, to, you know, they came to me and attempted to resolve it on a couple of occasions. But uh, we just couldn't come to an agreement in the middle. Uh, but, it, you know, that was that was with the state party. Uh, we did have a good relationship with the gubernatorial campaign, particularly the staff in the regional office. So uh, it was really sort of bits and pieces. Uh, you know, we. Uh, we took the 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 parts that we could work with and um you know the the parts where we couldn't uh come to an agreement we just said okay you know we're going to we're going to go our own way and not have to worry about this particular group within the state party umbrella i saw a report that some of the friction may have come from your opposition to a utility in the state in the state dominion power it's a source of friction for sure uh, you know, this is a very, very old story in Virginia politics, going back to the days of Henry Howell, who was lieutenant governor of Virginia for two years. He ran for governor three times, got 49 percent a couple of times. Uh, but he used to have campaign bumper stickers that said, welcome to Virginia, a wholly owned subsidiary of VEPCO. Uh, VEPCO <laughs> changed their name to Dominion Power and they changed their name to Dominion Energy. But their control over the General Assembly is still just as strong as it was back then. Uh, they're the largest individual contributor in Virginia politics. They contribute to both parties uh, on the order of millions of dollars. Uh, and I was actively challenging the power of Dominion Energy. 
uh, you know, I was opposing the pipelines that they're building, which, uh, you know, we obviously we know the science is in the, the only safe number for carbon emissions is zero. Uh, so I was in, uh, you know, full throated opposition to these new fracked gas pipelines that would basically double our carbon emissions. Uh, I was also opposed to a number of their other projects. They had a, a high voltage transmission line that they were trying to put in uh, to serve uh, a primary customer, which would be a set of Amazon data centers. Uh, and they were trying to uh, take people's property and you know run it directly over residential communities. Um, and you know I was I was proud to join in the fight uh, to tell them to use the actual uh, Interstate 66 right of way, which was another option they didn't want to use because it was going to cost them more in construction. So uh, when you stand up to the bully in the room, you get some weird reactions. Uh, but clearly it's something that the, the people of my district were hungering for because uh, we got a lot of good responses from it. What did running as an open socialist look like on the ground? Were you red baited? And how did voters respond when you knocked on doors? Well, yeah, so I wasn't going out there and saying, you know, hi, I'm Lee Carter, vote for socialism, right? <laughs> uh, but but uh, I was going out and I was talking about uh, the things that, that make that up, right? I was talking about building democracy in the workplace, uh, empowering working people, uh, both economically and politically, uh, and talking about healthcare as a human right and, and building, uh, building a single payer healthcare plan on the state level that will protect all eight and a half million people that call Virginia home, regardless of what happens in Washington. And, you know, the plan from the start, you know, as soon as I started paying dues in DSA was uh, it's not going to go in our paid communications, but if anybody asks about it, say yes, uh, and then explain what it means. And so that's exactly what happened. You know, we had a couple of, couple of reporters that were doing stories on DSA uh, that asked me, you know, do you consider yourself a democratic socialist? And I said, yes. Uh, and I guess my opponent got, got hold of those pieces because he actually sent out a mailer to 11,000 homes in the district uh, that had pictures of uh, Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, and Lee Carter. And it was cartoonish. It was so <laughs> over the top uh, that, I mean, I, I had people that were tracking down my canvassers in the days after that came out and they were you know, waving it at our people and saying, hey, you know, I got this in the mail from your guy's opponent. And it's so disgusting that I'm going to I'm going to go vote Gillespie Carter. So that old, you know, 1950s, 1960s style red baiting, it clearly doesn't work anymore uh, because people, especially in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis and you know after occupy in 2011 and the bernie sanders presidential campaign in 2016 they're really starting to wake up and they're saying you know this the economy that we've built uh that that glorifies the largest corporations in the world and gives them whatever they want is leaving working people behind so we need something different tell me a little about your your district and your opponent whether it's the sort of district that one might expect would elect one of the first democratic socialists to this sort of office? Yeah, so we're about 45, 50 miles outside of Washington, D.C. Um, it's considered an exurb, uh, but it's one of the most diverse districts 
in Virginia. Uh, you know, we're about 23% Hispanic and Latino, about 13% African American. Uh, but economically, we look like all of Virginia in miniature. Uh, we've got some pockets where it's, you know, old money families, the, the, the families that founded the city of Manassas, uh, who have been here for 10, 12, 15 generations. Uh, we've got some pockets of intergenerational poverty uh, where people are working 70, 80 hours a week uh, for poverty wages and they're just barely getting by. Uh, and we've also got a large population of people who are young professionals uh, who are just getting their first taste of the white picket fence life. So we've got a little bit of everything here. And uh, the thing that transcends uh, all of those things is economic conditions. You know, as a socialist, there's there's an understanding that there's really only two ways that you make your living. You either make your living off of the work that you do for someone else or you make your living off of the money that you already have. And 98 percent of people make their living off of the work they do for someone else. So when you're talking about working people's issues, you're talking about the issues of 98 percent of the population. Uh, and that's clearly something that works because. Uh, you know, here we are in in sort of the, the belly of the beast in the Washington, D.C. metro area. Uh, but we were able to run an aggressive, populist, pro-worker campaign against uh, the Republican majority whip. You know, one of the most powerful Republicans in Virginia. And Virginia is a state where the Republican Party is extraordinarily powerful. Uh, and we were able to unseat him. What were what were his politics like? Uh, he was very much a pro-corporate kind of guy. Uh, you know, this is a guy who uh, proudly proclaimed that uh, the most restrictive thing for business is to allow unions to exist, and he wasn't going to do that. So, uh, you know, it was really, uh, according to conventional wisdom, it was a very much a David and Goliath kind of fight. Uh, but and your you know, district, your district went for Trump by how many points? Uh, so my district was actually pretty interesting. Uh, it was uh, a district that went to Cuccinelli by one in the previous gubernatorial oh. year. Uh, but it did go to Clinton by 12 and a half. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. OK, I, that's that's what I, I misremembered that. Interesting. Interesting. Although I will say I'll, I'll give a shout out to another candidate, um, Josh Cole, who's running in the, the previous uh, Virginia speaker's seat. Uh, down in Fredericksburg and Stafford, he was a Bernie guy, not explicitly socialist, but, uh, you know, pro single payer, anti-corporate corruption. Um, and this is a Trump plus 15 or Trump plus 20 district. And his race is still too close to call pending legal fights. Wow. And that's one of the seats that control of the House of Delegates hinges on. That's correct. Looking at Virginia politics as a whole, what if there were unified democratic control of state government do you think might be accomplished as enthused as people on the left are all around the country about your election that feeling is a little bit dampened when it comes to your party's governor elect who voted for George W Bush twice and responded to these vicious racist attack ads from Ed Gillespie the Republican candidate by saying that he would ban sanctuary cities it's a party with a lot. The Democratic Party of Virginia currently has quite a bit of political diversity with you on the left wing of that of that that tent and the governor elect Northam on the right. 
Yeah. So the governor elect, uh, you know, I was I was vocally critical about some of his positions. Uh, you know, he is from obviously from the conservative wing of the Democratic Party, which does still exist uh, here in Virginia, uh, along with several members of the House of Delegates, who I'm going to have to work with as a part of the uh, House Democratic Caucus. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, the House is split. Uh, it may be 49 seats to 51 one way or the other. It may be 50-50. Uh, the, the Senate is split 21 Republicans to 19 Democrats. Uh, so we're going to have to find ways to work together. It's, it's non-negotiable. Uh, so to the extent that folks are serious about making life better for working people in Virginia, I'm going to work with them. That's what I was elected to do. Uh, to the extent that they continue policies of corporate welfare, I'm going to oppose those. And if they want to get them passed, they're going to have to find Republicans to make up the gap. Uh, but, you know, working together to make life better for working people is really non-negotiable at this point. Uh, it's what we were all elected to do. Uh, and we have two years to start delivering on that, because if we don't, then it's going to be us looking for jobs in 2019. Before I let you go, I imagine until quite recently, you didn't imagine that you at would be today about to enter the Virginia House of Delegates. What do you say to listeners out there who are disappointed about the crop of candidates ahead of the upcoming election? I'll say that, you know, the, the most passionate folks in politics, whether they be um, activists or candidates or, or what have you, the folks who really want to get down to the root of the problems that they see in society, uh, our stories all begin with the words, I can't. I can't allow this to continue. I can't remain silent anymore. Uh, there, there's a moment where your conscience will not allow you uh, to let the status quo continue. And so for anyone who's at that point, Who's, who's thinking to themselves, I can't let people get taken advantage of. I can't allow my neighbors to continue to live in poverty while they work 80 hours a week. Step forward, run for something, you know, uh, especially these local and state elections. They have the biggest impact on people's lives. And you can go out there and get actual face time with the voters in your district, you know, my district has 85,000 people. Obviously, I was not able to talk to all 85,000 in person, but uh, a very significant portion, I was able to go out there and actually meet them and shake their hands and tell them that I'm going to work tirelessly to make your life better. And that's all that it takes. Uh, you know, it takes the motivation to get uh, to get up and, and say that you can't allow the status quo to continue. Uh, and, and it takes doing some paperwork to get on the ballot. And then you go out there and you talk to people and you uh, convince them that that you're going to be their advocate in, uh, you know, in City Hall or in whatever state capital, wherever you live. And having some strong local DSA chapters to organize on your behalf and knock on doors doesn't hurt either, does it? Oh yeah, that didn't, that doesn't hurt one bit. Yeah, uh, you know, in the in the last four days of our campaign, we knocked on about twenty one thousand doors, and uh, the local DSA chapter did about half of that, just wow. a little shy of half of that. Wow. Well, Lee Carter, uh, congratulations and thank you so much. All right, thank you so much for having me on.
Lee Carter is delegate-elect for Virginia's 50th House District and a member of DSA. My second guest is David Dualde, DSA's deputy director. David Dualde, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me, Dan. I'm very excited to be on. So, as you know, I was just speaking to Lee Carter, so I wanted to start by asking you about that race and what you think that listeners, members of DSA and not, should take away from an open socialist knocking out the Republican House of Delegates whip in the Virginia exurbs. That's a really great question. I think that there are several lessons to draw. from. One of the more obvious ones is that, you know, democratic socialists can win anywhere and socialists should compete everywhere. Um, and that it didn't matter that this had been held, held for a substantial period of time. You know, they saw that the terrain was ripe, that Clinton had taken the district um, and that it was open. I think the second thing that really matters this is that I first met Lee Carter in January when he came to speak at a DSA meeting. And so Lee was campaigning for months before this event. And, um, and I think that a lot of folks going into electoral politics need to realize that if we're talking about 2018, you should be think, we should be thinking about now who we're going to support because it takes a lot of work. And it's not just about labels and messaging. It's about the old-fashioned work. Um, and I um, wanted to add that, like, you know, DSAers, like, while well, social media is really important, and, like, it was really volunteers going in every weekend, <laughs> knocking on thousands of doors, making thousands of phone calls that really helped shift the election. And I myself went to volunteer, and I just saw, like, how fabulous and awesome while there's lots of modern technology, it's going to take a lot of old-fashioned practices to, for DSA to learn and adapt and socialists to continue to use to win these elections, which are ours for the taking. DSA had a big day last Tuesday in general. Aside mm-hmm. from Lee's race, who won that people should be, who people should be paying attention to? couple of races that definitely come to mind um, off the top of my head. So DSA nationally endorsed six candidates, um, and two of whom who won. So J.T. Scott in Somerville, Massachusetts, and and of Lakewood, Ohio, uh, were our two uh, DSA members who were nationally endorsed who won um, and really were part of a, a swell of kind of synergy between our revolution and DSA. Uh, J.T. Scott was part of a slate of candidates unanimously, including another DSA member, Ben Ewan Campman, uh, who also won an election um, in the city of Somerville. And, and Tristan Rader uh, is another great uh, example of who went back to his hometown and really worked hard and diligently to get uh, elected, um, kind of working, kind of fighting hospital closures. And so those are the two national races I think we want folks to pay attention to, but there were several other really important ones, because I mean, out of 15, and I think uh, Anita uh, Pizarro in uh, Pittsburgh is another great one, where she was a member, also endorsed by the local Our Revolution, um, worked tirelessly hard uh, to upseat an incumbent race, and so I think those are kind of the races we're going to be watching, and I overall am very excited just to say that I'm 
to see DSA uh, starting with, with these local races, though next year will be the big federal races, because we really want to start building a pipeline of candidates who can start running for higher and higher offices. And so it's a critical for socialists to think to start at the grassroots. And as we build electoral power, you know, start from the from the bottom and then slowly rise up. But those are some of the races I'd identify. And also I think why I think they're important, even if they're um, not like major offices. Were there also races where DSA candidates fell short, but that are important to look back on where where there was some significant success even in in losing? Yeah, um, I I think so. So in all of our four races that we lost, our members still got in double digits. Uh, I think the one that comes, I, I think they're all actually worth mentioning of the national races. So Ginger Denson is not a DSA member. She's a social alternative member, but she, like uh, the other candidates I'm going to mention, received both our revolution and uh, DSA support. Um, Ginger finished first of the... Uh, ranked choice candidate, uh, top choice getters, but she lost, unfortunately, in the when they finished the um, tallying. And I think what she showed was that there was a lot of... Where was this? Oh, sorry. And she... So, sorry, Ginger Jensen ran for uh, uh, city council in Minneapolis for the Ward 3. And so she, Ginger, came out of the fight for 15 and had helped uh, work on um, getting a $15 minimum wage in the city of Minneapolis and was working on is working on affordable housing issues and the you know capitalist interests especially developers <laughs> and chamber of commerce poured hundreds of thousands of dollars against her even though she was the top you know because she was the top fundraiser um and so i still think that she's building a broader coalition to kind of keep these issues at the forefront uh jabari brisport who was a green who ran for city council in new york city uh also ran on a newly created socialist ballot line uh, Jabari got nearly 30% of the vote in a city where third parties tend to get single digits at best <laughs> if they even crack 1%. And yeah. Jabari really built another fabulous campaign that showed that DSA members could really, really get out there and canvas neighborhoods and really re-engage a lot of people who weren't interested in politics. And I think the Lee Carter race showed that there's just lots of people who are just wanting to be engaged. And similarly in Brooklyn as well, the Kader El-Yahim, uh, who lost, unfortunately lost his primary in, in, on, in September 12th, uh, was also running for city council. And we built a broad coalition with Arab groups and other community organizations to support his, his race. And sad last but not least was John Grant, who was a housing rights advocate who ran against a very good liberal candidate, uh, Teresa Moschetto, um, who, was, who was a good person in, in, on her own. Uh, and we really kind of, but John and Seattle DSA, you know, knocked on 22,000 doors and really brought, are really at the forefront of raising issues of the unsheltered in Seattle. And I think with examples like Jensen in Minneapolis, Grant in Seattle, it, they're really elevating issues that kind of can go unseen and kind of be attacked by capital um, and ignored by neoliberals. And so, like, even though they lost, they still, like, really made dents and really made national news. And I'm kind of really, it's hard to hold back my excitement because I really think that even when we didn't kind of come through at the end, like, we're still building this base that's ready for the next elections. And 
I saw near a tandem of the Center for American Progress kind of like chastising people for getting too excited about DSA's electoral prospects. So um, I'm very happy to see that, you know, people are talking about us. <laughs> and so even though, even with these wins, people are getting noticed by everybody. Yeah. If, if Neera Tannen is unhappy, uh, you should be happy. Tell me a little bit about how electoral organizing work has been playing into broader chapter organizing and capacity building and campaigns one, and two, where you see this all heading in terms of DSA's more short-term development, I mean, the next year or two? So I think the most immediate example I can think of is that electoral organizing, you know, despite some of the headlines we're getting, is not even the bulk of what the work DSA chapters are doing. So there were, so there's certainly efforts to make sure that that they're not being done in silos and they're one is lifting the other up. So, for example, we are in the D.C. I live in Washington, D.C., and the D.C. chapter of DSA represents members in Virginia, such as Lee Carter, and uh, in Maryland. Um, and we have couple. We have at least three members who are running for the Montgomery County um, uh, Executive Board. And this, and so we've been talking to them. Well, and so we are, our chapter is also running a tenants' rights campaign to help stop evictions. And while this information is easily accessible in the District of Columbia, it's not as easily accessible in Montgomery County, and we're working with the elected officials who are members there um, to get this information to kind of work and enforce tenants' rights in the in the county Montgomery County in Maryland. So that's a really exciting example of how these uh, two camp you know electoral work is also helping our social movement work. I think in, in the immediate term too, we are discussing how we're going to kind of start pushing Medicare for all and other par and labor rights, which are other national priorities in addition to electoral action through these candidates. I know that our labor um, caucus is looking at um, the labor records of people who ran. And we're definitely thinking about how we can kind of incorporate Medicare for all and push our candidates uh, who to incorporate that into their legislative agendas and make sure that they're part of that. Um, and I know that Lee Carter has discussed made single payer a huge issue. Um, we're very excited about that. And I think in the long term, um, we also want to start adding an accountability and trying to make sure that people know that when they get endorsed by DSA, there are expectations of them and we still need to democratically decide what those are, but we definitely want to make sure that, you know, people who are members or just get elected by us have a set of promises they need to stick by and really kind of help advance, you know, democratic socialism, both locally and nationally. And so I think there's a lot to be done and there's, but really right now it's like, these are, there's tons of potential out there. And I think like we're just trying to make sure we do this and organized way. And also that really participates lots of chapters in, in this electoral process, because our, our, cause like unlike other nonprofits who are engaged in electoral politics, like for us, like to get a national endorsement, like you need to be nominated by a chapter. It can't be staff or any leaders just handpicking people. It has to be coming from the grassroots. And so we want to make sure that grassroots democratic component remains in any of our future work as well. My last question has a bit of a long-winded setup, which <laughs> is that I think a lot of people on the left are trying to figure out what last week's elections mean in terms of this mm -hmm. long-running debate between 
the left and Bernie Kratz on the one hand and the corporate aligned Democratic establishment on the other. And that that debate, to recap briefly, is people on the left, including me, have made this case that candidates embracing a radical populist agenda are better suited than the corporate Democrats to take on the Republican right. In other words, that we not only have good policy, but that our policy translates into better politics. The establishment counter to that is we need moderate candidates to win over swing voters, especially affluent whites in suburbs. And as listeners will recall, the first big test case for this earlier this year was sort of a wash. You had mega moderate Josh Ossoff in Georgia and lefty Rob Quist in Montana both lose. And then this last week, we have all these exciting DSA wins, um, including Lee Carter, but we also have Northam, uh, Ralph Northam, the Democrat who won the governor's race in Virginia. I mean, I'm glad he won and not Gillespie for sure, but this is a Democrat who twice voted for war criminal George W. Bush (laughs) and said that he'd banned sanctuary cities. So I feel like the debate is still kind of like unsettled and the future is a little uncertain and up for grabs. What's your read? I think I read it very similar to you. I mean, I do believe that um, I will, I'll just say I don't believe, I was quite surprised how well Ralph Northam did, which to me spoke more to an anti-Trump backlash, which I think even Republicans in Virginia on CNN agreed with, um, than as much as how popular Northam is. I think that Lee Carter obviously didn't benefit from the same outside money and deep pockets that Northam had, so his campaign um, you know, was, did do better because it was a progressive outside message. And I think what we have to realize is we, as democratic socialists, and, you know, more in the, more in the Bernie Kratz have a kind of a window of this election and the next one to, that where there is a, the zeitgeist and the general feeling of the country is towards change and towards rejecting Republicans, which I think explains why Neera Tandon and other centrists are kind of like at DSA because, they know that, as we should, that the, the, some of these Democratic primaries are going to be the elections <laughs> because the Republicans are on are on the defensive. So I think it's really is that this is really almost the best time for us to put our energy into electoral politics to get some W's because then we can start keeping our folks in. Because I do think, obviously, I would agree with you that it's our message is the better message that I think will apply to broader people. Um, I think it's just on us to get out the volunteers and that there are structural issues that make it harder for us to win. It's not just, you know, that people like the centrists. But I think that what I think we have to take a step back and realize it's like we have to we have a great moment, a great opportunity in the next election cycle to really win. And I think the centrists also realize then they want to win <laughs> because the Republicans are really weakened. And I think we just have to take advantage of that. So I really encourage people to run, uh, especially socialists, and really challenge centrist Democrats and other people um, who are not progressive. So and I think that, you know, Lee Carter shows you don't have to wait for a primary. I mean, there's there's tons of weak Republicans out there, too. So I think now is our time and we just have to seize it. I couldn't agree more. There's an anti-Republican wave coming, but there is no inevitability or guarantee about whether it's the corporate Democrats or the left that seizes this opportunity. And so, yeah, it is entirely up to us to do this. David Duale, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for having me on the air. 
David Dualde is Deputy Director of DSA. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once explained to a disgruntled voter he was canvassing, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please take a moment and leave us a review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does telling your friends. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. So is your financial support. If you haven't already, go to patreon.com slash the dig.